Our next speaker is Jeffrey Thane. Jeffrey graduated from BYU with a bachelor's and a master's degree in psychology and completed his doctorate at Utah State University. He runs the popular Latter-day Saint Philosopher blog, and uh, he, he's spoken before, and he's, he, he's written that wonderful book called Who is Truth? If you haven't read it yet, you might want to pick yourself up a copy and look at that. And with that, we'll turn the time over to Jeffrey Thane. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to take 15 seconds and just marvel at the technology that makes all this possible. I was just thinking this morning and a little bit yesterday about how it's like a series of insanely complex Rube Goldberg machines where I can touch a button here and through a series of metaphorical dominoes of bewildering complexity, pixel change over here. And not just over here, but in hundreds, perhaps thousands of screens across the country. And I think that's amazing. So thanks for the technical team that makes that possible. Um, They do excellent work. So... Um, so let's just, let's just jump in. Um, let's imagine two roommates, James and Greg, who both attend BYU. Um, they live under the same roof. They are both practicing Latter-day Saints. And they both claim to believe the doctrines taught in, by the proclamation on the family on sexuality and gender. However, despite their shared beliefs, the way they experience church culture and policies couldn't be more different. For James, BYU's honor code seems like a natural extension of those teachings, an institutional scaffold that helps reinforce our moral intuitions. For him, discipleship involves participating in a community that encourages and reinforces our shared values and priorities and helps us maintain our ideals and live out our convictions. For Greg, the community norms these doctrines give rise to are disclosed to him and experienced by him as stifling and burdensome towards LGBT individuals. He concludes that his faith requires him to engage in political and social advocacy on the behalf of LGBT friends, families, and neighbors to make the university and the church more hospitable for those who live LGBT lifestyles. This leads us to the question, how can two people who share the same doctrinal beliefs arrive at such wildly different conclusions? This question is relevant to those of us who want to help members maintain faith and conviction. The Gregs of the story do not always experience a crisis of faith and leave the church. But Greg's approach may indeed prime him towards distrust of the church's policies and traditions, and sow the seeds of continued disappointment and future disaffection when the church doesn't change in the ways he prefers. I believe the answer to this question is that doctrinal propositions are not always the primary source of our most central convictions. More often than not, our convictions form as a result of our worldviews. Oh, there we go. So, what is a worldview? A worldview is a set of values and assumptions about the world through which we interpret our experiences. More specifically, worldviews shape our understanding of what human flourishing 
and what the good life looks like. Steve Wilkins and Mark Sanford explained that worldviews, quote, tell us what we should do. Um, tell us what we should love and what we should despise. What is valuable or unimportant? What is good or evil? Like a pair of covered lenses, our worldviews shape and inform where we look and what we see when we look there. This picture, as a metaphor for worldviews, is actually misleading because it implies that we could take our worldviews off and see the world as it really is. However, we can only ever trade one worldview for another. There is no way to look at the world except through the lens of a worldview. Wilkins and Sanford have written a fantastic book called Hidden Worldviews, Eight Cultural, Science, uh, Eight Cultural Stories That Shape Our Lives. Written from a broadly Christian perspective, they identify a series of non-Christian worldviews that sometimes shape Christian thinking. Worldviews such as consumerism, nationalism, or naturalism. They argue that worldviews are more than lists of propositions. Worldviews at their core are rooted in stories. Stories give us characters. And every story, characters have goals, aspirations, and desires. The things that the characters are striving for. By setting forth the goals and aspirations of the characters, stories also describe the conflict that drive the story or the problem that stands between the characters and their aspirations. Worldview stories also set forth the expected, anticipated, or desired resolution for the conflict. In all of these, they shape our understanding of what human flourishing and the good life looks like, and they also define the villains or the antagonist of the story. So, what is the gospel worldview or the gospel story? Well, as characters in the story, we, um, so as characters, I think I just messed up my pages here. Here we go. Okay, there we go. Um, what is the gospel worldview or the gospel story? Well, as characters in the story, we are sons and daughters of God with a divine destiny. Our goal is salvation and exaltation to return to live with God again, to lay hold upon the blessings of eternity. And what stands between us and our desires? That is, what is the conflict that drives the story? Well, we, the protagonists, have been alienated from God through sin. What is the anticipated or hoped-for resolution? We find redemption through Christ by making and keeping sacred covenants with God and by participating in sacred ordinances. And by so doing, we lay hold upon the fruits of the Spirit in our day-to-day life. We become reconciled with God and commune with him in holy temples. When we embrace and internalize this worldview and its story, we see human flourishing and the good life is bound up in the enjoyment of the fruits and gifts of the Spirit and in temple worship, regardless of our life circumstances or the trials we face along the way. And the villains of the story our sin, vice, and the adversary, who entices us towards sin and rebellion. It is in the translation of these stories into our lives that we form our convictions. To be clear, convictions here are more than mere stated beliefs. Wilkins and Sanford argue that our stated beliefs, that is, our um, confessional beliefs, are 
can be at odds with our convictional beliefs. Confessional beliefs are those doctrinal commitments that we profess to hold to, and our convictional beliefs are those values that are reflected in how we live our lives. In their book, Sanford and Wilkins explore consumerism as an example of a worldview that competes with the gospel story. Consumerism is a worldview that depicts us as consumers. Um, and built, that, that we are built to enjoy, to consume, and that our aspirations are a life of material comfort. And what stands in our way? Um, well, scarcity or lack of money. And the hope for resolution is improved employment and income, the accumulation of wealth, increased material comforts and enjoyment. In this worldview, human flourishing is found in material consumption. And the villain of this story is anything that gets in the way of material comfort and prosperity, be it income inequality, unemployment, underemployment, and so forth. It is possible for a Christian to openly confess that their aspirations are discipleship, sacrifice, and service, and yet live as if their highest priority is material comfort. Their confessional beliefs may diverge from their convictional beliefs, which are handed to them by an undetected consumeristic worldview. In the same way, in the example above, both James and Greg may share a confessional belief in the church's doctrines on the family, but Greg's convictional beliefs may be informed by something else. And we'll get to what that something else is in a moment. So going back to Sanford and Wilkins, they explained that our questions and discourse can often be informed by hidden worldviews that sneak into our thinking and shape our convictions. They explained it is not the worldviews that begin as theories. Oh, here we are. I've, I've been not advancing this slide. I should. There we go. All right. There we go. It is not the worldviews that begin as theories or intellectual systems that mold the lives and beliefs of most people. Instead, the most powerful influences come from worldviews that emerge from culture. They are all around us, but are so deeply embedded in our culture that we don't see them. In other words, these worldviews are hidden in plain sight. We are more likely to absorb them from cultural contact than through rational evaluation of competing theories. Because of their stealthy nature, these worldviews find their way behind church doors, mixed in with Christian ideas, and sometimes identified with Christian positions. In a similar way, I believe that Latter-day Saints today, many Latter-day Saints today struggle with their faith, not because they've learned something about, something about what Brigham Young said or did, or because they discovered some nasty facts surrounding polygamy, or some eccentricities of Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon translation, etc., Many of people think that their, their trials of faith center on these questions, and some of them may be right. But it seems to me that many of those who struggle with these historical questions do so because they've first embraced unquestioningly and often unwittingly other worldviews, and, other worldviews with stories that tilt them towards doubt. Having done so, historical questions provide a pretext for a faith crisis that has been the works long before they ever realized and the true reasons for their crisis are often beyond their ability to articulate. They are merely living out a story handed to them by their worldview. 
we don't often have a shared language. We're talking about these competing worldviews. Let me share a story that is told by a graphic designer named Robin Williams. Many years ago, I received a tree identification book for Christmas. I was at my parents' home, and after all the gifts had been opened, I decided to go out and identify the trees in the neighborhood. Before I went out, I read through part of the book. The first tree in the book was the Joshua tree because it took only two clues to identify it. Now, the Joshua tree is a really weird-looking tree. And I looked at that picture and said to myself, oh, we don't have that kind of tree in Northern California. That is a weird-looking tree. I would know if I saw that tree, and I've never seen one before. So I took my book and went outside. My parents lived on a cul-de-sac, a cul-de-sac of six homes. Four of those homes had Joshua trees in the front yard. I had lived in that house for 13 years, and I had never seen a Joshua tree. Once I was conscious of the tree, once I could name it, I saw it everywhere. This is what I call, sometimes called the Joshua tree principle. If we cannot name something, it is often invisible to us. And our own worldviews are often invisible to us precisely because we don't have names for them. And so by giving names to these worldviews and showcasing them with examples, we've done perhaps a third of the necessary work. We will have revealed to many something about their own thinking that they before did not fully notice or realize. For some, this unveiling and revealing might even be enough to show them the source of their difficulties and the path back into faith and conviction. For others, it might at least be a start on that journey. So let's look at a worldview in depth. Expressive individualism is a worldview that gives self-expression a privileged place among human goods. It treats the social freedom to engage in self-expression as a paramount virtue. Unlike all worldviews, it hands us a story. In this story, we aspire to become who we truly are. The conflict of this story is aptly illustrated in the writings of humanistic psychologist Carl Rogers, who argued that the threat of judgment creates a split between our private and public selves. Because of the cultural norms and family expectations or religious conventions, we hide our true selves from the world. Therapeutic therapeutic healing, in Roger's view, requires us to break free from the shackles of oughts and thou shalts and embrace what we have hidden from others. The expected or hoped-for resolution to this conflict is that we step into and assert our true selves. Carl Rogers explained, over and against these pressures for conformity, we find that when clients are free to be any way they wish, they tend to resent and to question the tendency of the organization, the college, or the culture to mold them to any given form. 
Human flourishing, then, is defined as living in a community that celebrates our uniquenesses and differences. A community that doesn't evaluate our choices or have an agenda for our lives. The villain of the story is anyone who makes us feel self-conscious or evaluated for our unique self-expression. In this way, expressive individualism leads us to be suspicious of any religious mores, cultural norms, or societal institutions that discourage self-expression. In its most extreme forms, expressive individualism presumes that there is no greater moral authority than the self to decide what the good life or what human flourishing looks like for us. Expressive individualism makes an idol of personal autonomy and free choice, unfettered by stifling norms and religious conventions. From this view, community norms and religious precepts that lead people to evaluate our choices, especially choices that we see as an outgrowth of our natural selves or our true selves, hinders personal development. So let's put the expressive individualist story and the gospel story side by side. Expressive individualist story, the expressive individualist story takes place in three stages. First, the protagonist finds themselves in a community of oppressive norms and expectations. This could be a community that discourages rocket building in favor of coal mining, if any of you have ever seen that movie. Um, This could be a religious community that discourages embracing LGBT lifestyles. Whatever the case may be, the community does not celebrate their unique preferences, desires, or aspirations. Next, the protagonist breaks free of the constraints of her family, community, or faith and embraces authenticity and self-expression. And they become, she becomes the person that she wants to be. She becomes true to her heart. She embraces whatever parts of herself that were formerly formerly hidden from the world, be that an interest in rocket building or an LGBT lifestyle or whatever the case may be. And then finally, the protagonist returns, revisits, or reinvests in his or her community for the purpose of remaking the community's norms to accommodate the new version of themselves. They seek reconciliation by reinventing the community in their image. For example, they might engage in social advocacy to dismantle norms that discourage LGBT lifestyles, or they might start a rocket science club at their school. In contrast, the gospel narrative can also be expressed in three distinct stages. First, the protagonist comes to acknowledge the ways in which he or she has alienated themselves from God through sin. Then the protagonist seeks redemption and reconciliation with God through Christ by making and keeping sacred covenants. And then the protagonist becomes a disciple, serving Christ and enjoying the fruits of the, and gifts of the Spirit. Now, this isn't to say that all examples of expressive individualism are bad. Individualism is a wonderful thing if you are, for example, a bookworm or theater nerd in a a high school that prioritizes athleticism. Or if you are an aspiring rocket scientist in a community that expects you to become a coal miner. Sometimes we need to reevaluate 
community norms that stifle legitimate self-expression, and to be more deliberate in valuing and celebrating individual differences. However, as a worldview, these stories set forth different values and priorities for us. Where expressive individualism makes community norms the central hurdle of the story, the gospel makes sin the central hurdle of the story. Worldviews and their stories not only shape our values and assumptions, they can also shape our vocabulary and how we experience the world. And this is where we circle back to James and Greg from earlier. The reason why James and Greg have such different experiences in the church, despite superficially similar doctrinal beliefs, is because Greg has embraced an expressive individualism as his core worldview. Expressive individualism can influence how we define and experience love. Expressive individualism defines love as the absence of judgment and also as the affirmation and celebration of whatever ways you differ from the community. Carl Rogers argued that human flourishing requires spaces of unconditional positive regard, therapeutic context in which individuals feel no hint or threat of evaluation or judgment. Only in such no-judgment zones, he argued, can individuals freely experiment with and step into their truest selves and become who they were built to be. As useful as this might be in a therapeutic context, as these ideas found expression in popular culture, the term unconditional positive regard was unwieldy and a bit niche, and so it was shortened to unconditional love. This term unconditional love was rarely used prior to the advent of humanistic psychology. In fact, here is a chart that I pulled from Google Ingram. Um, the term unconditional love began to be used in the 1960s and exploded in popularities in the 70s and 80s as humanistic psychology became popular. And because of this, the term has some undeclared baggage and smuggles into our discourse some unwitting assumptions about the nature of love. Basically, for many people, including many Latter-day Saints, um, we have come to see love and discernment as opposites. Just as a therapist who evaluates his client's decisions is not providing unconditional positive regard, according to Rogers, so it is that when family, friends, parents, and teachers, and church leaders evaluate someone's choices in light of the restored gospel and the covenants we have made, they are not providing unconditional love they are not providing unconditional love, according to the expressive individualist worldview. As a consequence, any attempt to reinforce a community's norms is taken to be unloving, by, de- by definition. In this view, love means celebrating uniquenesses and differences and encouraging others to live out those differences, facilitating that in whatever ways we can. The purest expression of love, in this view, looks a lot like social advocacy. And because worldviews shape our experience of the world, 
when expressive individualism is absorbed as our guiding worldview, anything short of affirmation doesn't feel like love to us. Now, I want to be crystal clear here. We should be patient with others. We should refrain from needless criticism. We should help those who wander feel wanted and valued in our congregations. God is patient with us, and so we should be patient with others. We should create a community where God's abiding love is unmistakable, a bonfire of redeeming love that warms those who have felt alienated from God. Those who sin should feel wanted, loved, and uh, welcome in 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 our congregations, families, and communities. And any time we falter in this regard, we should take corrective action. However, this open-hearted Christian humility, compassion, and charity is fundamentally different from the expressive individualist notion of affirmation and celebration. In a Christian worldview, love is all about genuine concern with an aim towards salvation and exaltation of souls through repentance, forgiveness, and transformation through Christ. In a Christian worldview, love is not indifference, and indifference is not love. Now, to to be clear, self-righteous judgment, self-serving condemnation, prideful nitpicking, moral grandstanding, these are all lapses in love. But so is apathy towards or even celebration of choices that contradict divine teaching. So it is that while James experiences a community of loving concern at church, Greg experiences a community of unloving judgment. Their experiences are the same, but are experienced differently by each of them because of the worldview lenses through which they are seeing the world. Similarly, when James and Greg hear President Nelson encouraging members to stay on the covenant path, James hears this as love, and Greg hears this as a lapse in love, as a threat of judgment should he or others deviate from the covenant path. The Rogerian baggage of the term unconditional positive regard and the subsequent linguistic drift in our definition and understanding of love can go a long way towards explaining why President Nelson in 2003 and Elder Christofferson in 2016 both warned against the term with a preference towards divine love, abiding love, infinite love, or love unfeigned. Unlike a Rogerian therapist, who imposes no expectations on the client, our God, a being of infinite, pure, and abiding love, has tremendous expectations of us and an agenda for our lives and for eternity. In addition, expressive individualism can influence how we define terms like Zion. Like, what does it mean to build Zion, for example? Latter-day Saints who embrace expressive individualism often define Zion as a place where no one feels self-conscious for being who they are, where their differences are celebrated by everyone in the community. I would submit that, from a scriptural perspective, Zion is a place where God's laws and teachings are no longer merely aspirational ideals, but have become shared commitments and community norms. 
This includes God's instructions to love everyone and God's guidelines with respect to chastity. The consequences of these vocabulary shifts are tremendous. They affect how we perceive and experience efforts to reinforce the distinctive norms of the Latter-day Saint community and to what extent we believe those norms should reflect our teachings about chastity, marriage, and gender. For example, while James um, sees robust norms that encourage chastity as part and parcel with the Zion experience, Greg begins to believe that we cannot achieve Zion until same-sex couples can freely express their sexual preferences, their true selves, in church or at BYU, without ever fearing judgment from those around them. So let's flesh out the gospel alternative to expressive individualism a little bit more. Whereas expressive individualism assumes that we flourish most in contexts where no one else has an agenda for us, we belong to a religious community that does have an agenda for us. We call it the covenant path. And the guide rails and signposts on that covenant path may not always dovetail our personal inclinations. I like to refer to the alternative to expressive individualism as Christian discipleship which I see as a willingness to be disciplined by Christ and also by institutions that bear his divine authority and name. As Latter-day Saints, we strive to embrace a gospel worldview in which commitments to community can transcend personal aspirations, where higher duties such as parenthood, priesthood service, and personal covenants take precedence over personal preferences. From the view of expressive individualism, individuals are the sole experts on what the good life looks like for them. But from a Christian perspective, we are not always the expert on what human flourishing looks like for us. There is a higher power, a divine moral sovereign, whom we trust more than the self, to, tell, uh, to, to know what our eternal destiny looks like. C.S. Lewis expressed this well when he wrote, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and natural desires. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Here, C.S. Lewis depicts us as subject to a divine sovereign who has an agenda for us, an agenda we do not necessarily right now have for ourselves. Human flourishing is not centered primarily on self-expression, but just as much on submission, sacrifice, and living beyond ourselves in the pursuit of commitments, duties, and covenants. It can involve a very different future for ourselves than we currently wish or imagine. And in fact, when Christ is done with us, we might wish or want very different things for ourselves. 
Now, as, we, as Alma de Younger put it, and speaking of the marvels of modern technology, we now know what the guy looks like. Um, mar- he said, marvel not that all mankind, yea, men and women, all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people must be born again, yea, born of God, changed from their carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God, becoming his sons and daughters, and thus they become new creatures. In short, Christ can change the desires of our hearts, the things that we value, prize, prioritize, and most earnestly seek after and sometimes wait for in our various life circumstances. Genuine, lasting conversion involves something more than merely asserting our uniqueness in the world which is the rubric of expressive individualism. It involves a change in our values and priorities so that they more closely resemble God's values and priorities. Now, to be crystal clear, I'm not saying that discipleship means that community norms are exempt from scrutiny or that discipleship involves blithely complying with all existing community norms. That's traditionalism, not discipleship. One way to put it is that traditionalism can be a counterfeit of discipleship. The expressive individualist says, follow your heart. Salvation is found in being true to yourselves. The traditionalist says, follow the rules. And salvation is found in rule following. And in contrast to both, Christ says, follow thou me. And salvation is found in him. And as we follow him, we allow him to change our hearts. And we also at times set forth to change our communities for the better. What that looks like, of course, will be different depending on the worldview we embrace. Now, worldviews are a funny thing. We rarely step into them knowingly. We passively absorb them as part of the zeitgeist of our times. If you want to change a person's worldviews, you don't necessarily write books. Creating a worldview identification book, like the tree identification book from earlier, can help us learn to see the invisible. And that's great, and we need that. But we absorb these invisible worldviews in the first place most often through our entertainment. It's in the music that we listen to, the movies that we watch, the novels that we read. Like the air we breathe, if movie after movie, show after show, book after book, song after song tells us stories that follow the expressive individualist template from before, we can internalize that story without ever realizing we are doing it. And the way our own faith traditions appear to us can then be changed by that story, as well as our values and priorities and expectations for our lives. Now, most who embrace expressive individualism have never heard of Carl Rogers, but they have merely imbibed on our cultural assumption, handed to us from Disney and from other Hollywood studios, that human flourishing involves being true to ourselves, true to our hearts, and asserting our uniquenesses against a world that would suppress them. A fun exercise is to ask What sorts of plots and stories would populate our movies 
is self-discipline, moral centeredness, and personal sacrifice were treated as at least as important as self-expression. If, in addition to stories of protagonists learning to assert their own preferences and to be themselves, we also had more stories of protagonists who relinquish some of their personal self-centered aspirations for the sake of their family, community, and, th- and community, and find meaning and purpose in committing themselves to a cause that is greater than themselves. Today, I extend an invitation to fellow writers and artists throughout the church to explore those questions. All right, so I've touched here on expressive individualism, and I've contrasted it with Christian discipleship. Expressive individualism is one of many such worldviews that can be explored. Another related one is therapeutic deism, a worldview that presumes that the purpose of religion is to help us be fulfilled, happy, and healthy. It offers us a central story where our lives were full of pain and hardship until we embraced religion. Because of our religious commitments, we are now content and happy. This can lead us to prioritize low-demand but high-warmth religious traditions and to see trial and struggle as signs of this divine disfavor or the sign that our religious traditions are yet imperfect. We can contrast express, uh, therapeutic deism with Christian theism, the belief that God is our divine moral sovereign and that religion is more about more than securing fulfillment and contentment in life. It is just as much about holiness, moral discipline, and becoming like God. In this view, we can recognize the necessity of pain and suffering as part of our sanctifying experiences and to see religion not as an escape from or a cure for our trials, but as a lens that provides meaning and purpose in our trials. Someday, if I'm ever invited back here, I'll explore therapeutic deism in much greater detail and why apologists should be aware of it. Another worldview is scientism, which gives us a central story where humankind progresses through history only by abandoning religious superstitions in light of scientific enlightenment. In this cultural story, societal progress is continually stymied throughout history by religious institutions and traditions. The dedicated efforts of scientists help move society forward in spite of these backward influences. This worldview primes us to be suspicious of claims to revelation and to view empirical methods as the, as the source of all reliable truth. Ben Spaxman has spoken in this form about the dangers of fundamentalism, and I believe he'll be speaking to us again tomorrow. He uses the term in a very specific way with a very specific meaning. I'll use the term in a little bit of a different sense here to refer more broadly to a worldview that assumes that divine instruction can never change. It hands us a story where direct revelation and established divine teaching and where communities subsequently depart from that divine teaching and fall into apostasy. This story has kernels of truth, profound truth. I mean, it's part of, part of our founding narrative in the, restored, in, in the restored church of Jesus Christ. But as the only story, it can also prime us to reject ongoing revelation if it appears even slightly different from our past interpretations of historic revelation. And this is where we get the Denver Snuffers or the Alan Rock Waterman and their followers. We can also explore the ways in which nationalism and other political worldviews set forth stories that shape our conviction and priorities in ways that um, 
distort how we live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stories that center on the state as the primary um, authority in our lives and the locus of our salvation from the ills that plague our society and the world. There are others I could include here, such as hedonism, which treats pleasure, satisfaction, and personal fulfillment as life's highest goods, and pain and suffering as inherent evils to be avoided. Or we have secular humanism, a worldview that centers our attention on human efforts and activity as opposed to God's activity in the world as the source of progress and salvation. In short, many are having a faith crisis today because they have already been proselyted into competing worldviews and just do not yet know it. As unwitting adherents to a foreign faith, but yet active participants in this one, they start to find many of the things that we do to be and teach to be strange and problematic. For example, when a, a person embraces expressive individualism as their central story, they might start to find it unjust that temple garments interfere with their preferred styles of dress. Similarly, an uncritical adoption of therapeutic deism might lead someone to be wary of temple worthiness requirements and the attendant social risks of failing to meet them. An uncritical embrace of hedonism might lead someone to feel like their religion is failing them when they experience episodes of depression. An uncritical embrace of scientism might lead someone to implicitly elevate social scientists over prophets and apostles as the primary authorities on the good life and human flourishing, and so on. Although ostensibly inside our faith, they view our practices and teachings through worldview lenses that predispose them to view our teachings and practices with some measure of suspicion. Now, I'm not trying to universalize this interpretation to everyone. My case is simply that many are having a crisis of faith precisely because they are straddling two worlds and do not have the vocabulary. They do not realize that they are doing so. They are uncomfortable maintaining that posture, but they, do not, they are not equipped with the language to articulate their predicament. And so they fixate on historical stuff that, for many of the rest of us, might pose no problem at all. But for someone who is already feeling out of place, it might give them precisely the pretext they need to leave. Our critics sometimes accuse us of being unwilling to question. I believe that we should ask far more questions than we often do, and that real critical thinking involves asking questions about our questions. For example, what cultural and worldview assumptions are baked into our questions? How are the terms defined? Terms like love, Zion, etc., and so on. Why these questions and not others? And how do our worldviews inform what we accept what we accept as permissible answers to our questions. I believe that when we learn to think critically about our questions, we can become more discerning and thoughtful Latter-day Saints. Today, I extend an invitation. We need more people working on articulating these competing worldviews, providing labels for them, critically examining them by comparing and contrasting them with gospel perspectives. We desperately need an improved vernacular 
and vocabulary on these matters. A worldview identification book, or many such books, to help us make the invisible visible to us. In other words, we need more people thoughtfully challenging the cultural presumptions of our day. And more especially, we need thoughtful people to, and thoughtful, we need thoughtful writers and creators to explore how these worldviews find expression in our entertainment and media and what it would look like if alternatives found similar expression along the way. Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, so the most important question comes from me, actually. This is one that you have to clear up. I noticed that the on the one slide you had, the book the, the young woman had, there's no switch, just hold it up, there we go, <laughs> so, was real chocolate. Did that have any theological significance? <laughs> can, you, can you repeat that again? Sorry. It said one of the books on your slide was uh, real chocolate. I have a, no idea. <laughs> so. I just found a stock photo. <laughs> That's, that's fine. Anyway, so here's a couple of questions. We are seeing right now another manifestation of expressive individualism in the overt rebellion against masking and vaccines in an Ayn Rand world of the survival of the fittest, including me, of course, and if everyone else dies or suffers, so be it. That does not sound to me like a Zion society. That was one set in. What do you think about that? Well, I, I, would, I would probably say that expressive individualism is probably playing a role in some of this, where there's this... I would say individualism at large, so to speak, is probably playing a role in this, 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 this um, where, where my needs, my preferences should be asserted over those of the community and so forth and so on. Um, I don't want to dismiss um, the, role, the role of individualism and human freedoms entirely, but I definitely think that's definitely playing a role. Okay. Do you perceive shifting your worldview as more important than responding to specific questions or concerns about church history, scripture, or doctrines? I would say it probably depends on the person. I mean, I w- like, I w- like I said in the presentation, I wouldn't universalize this to everyone. This is probably something that depends on the person, depends on the context. But I would say that for some people, I would say yes. Like, it doesn't matter what question, how many questions you answer, more questions are going to keep coming because their stance of questioning is not, does not stem from historical questions, but rather from a worldview that kind of tilting them towards doubt in the first place. Okay. What, what is an example of something in our community that we could change while still remaining faithful to our core beliefs and doctrines? Now, that's a great question. And I, I, th- I honestly do think that it's very possible that there are norms that we could revisit to help you know, mem- you know, members of the church who struggle feel more welcome in our congregations, feel more welcome in their families and communities. Um, I'm, I probably have disagreements with what no- those norms might be, and I, prob- and I have... You know, I don't necessarily believe, for example, we should be going out and changing BYU's honor code to be more permissive in those regards. But I do think we should develop more norms of proactive outreach, for example, for those who are struggling and for those of different backgrounds. Really appreciate your time with us. Thank you so much. Thank you.